Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today's a special episode. It's a Q&A episode. We call it Answers Without Organs. We took some of your questions on our social media accounts or on our Patreon account. And here we are today to answer those questions in a very informal kind of setting. Before we begin, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's supporting us in all the different kinds of ways, whether that's retweeting stuff that we tweet on Twitter, or if it's being a Patreon supporter, which now at this point we have exactly 50 patrons as I mentioned this. The question is, can we make that 50 more? You can subscribe to us for as little as $1, and for the rest of the year, that's like less than 5 or $6 at this point. So hop on board with us. Okay, let's get to your questions. This was a lot of fun, so we're just going to pop right into the discussion. I just started the recording, so maybe we can get started with some of these questions for our Q&A. So the first question, well, there's actually two questions here that we can combine into one. The first is from One Dime. It says, what affordable universities or colleges do you recommend which have good professors and postgraduate programs, PhD and or MA, for studying critical theory and more radical continental philosophy? And then also we have Tadbert Scraping. They're asking a question about, is the institution of the university salvageable in any sense when it comes to radical thought, meaning is the university a radical center? Is it sufficient to put forth radical ideas and actualize them in any meaningful way? So who wants to take that one first? Well, I can have a go at the um, the university's bit first. Um, I can speak to at least some of the ones in the, in the UK, at least. Um, maybe Craig or Will could speak to the US. Um, but in terms of critical theory and continental philosophy, that sort of area, um, my understanding is that um, the most sort of uh, respected universities would probably include uh, Warwick um, in particular. Um, I know Sussex and Essex both have some really, really great um, writers and thinkers there. Um, Fabian Freinhagen has done some amazing work on Adorno's ethics in particular. And then there's some in London too, like Birkbeck. Uh, goldsmiths obviously my, my understanding is it's basically a mixture of primarily warwick sussex and essex for sort of continental two more there in particular so another good one for continental philosophy is um royal holloway which is technically a university of london but it's, it's relatively far out there you've got a lot of the deleuze great deleuzean thinkers you've got um, nathan widders there you've got uh, harry summers hall who did uh, hegel deleuze critique representation that was quite good and as i don't know if matt was setting me up for this but there's also got uh, the center for research in modern european philosophy in in uh, kingston in london that is a great has its own critical theory ma lots of good scholars there really in-depth courses uh, yes i do go there i am selling it i was kind um, of giving, <laughs> setting you up there yeah have a plug, have a plug no, for no, it, yeah. no other place I've been to where you can go to a Hegel class and read a whole, like the whole phenomenology in one course. It's intense as fuck, but you're not going to have that chance a lot. <laughs> and yeah, very, you know, really sort of good Scottish going on there. You got, you know, um, Etienne Balabar, Pete Hallward, Catherine Malibu, Stella Sanford, Howard K. Got like loads of cool people going there. Peter Osborne, like it's, it's a really sort of good all round set. Now, Eric Alias, who studied with Deleuze, like that's that is my favorite place to go. Continental philosophy. I went there for two degrees. <laughs> sure but coming back to the point about the function of the university yeah i don't think it's a, a radical center so much necessarily as it can be a radical incubator or an incubator mm. of radical programs because 
One of the things that the university has as a kind of holdover as it's going into the neoliberal era is a lot of resources and the ability to spend money on things that aren't necessarily productive in the neoliberal worldview, especially where there are philosophy departments, even though in places like the UK they are getting shut down quite often. But I think you can definitely tap into that resource pool to really build radical projects, build radical side reading groups. Of course, this requires itself not grants and maintenance loans and something that a privilege isn't available to everyone, but Sure. I think there is definitely a space for working in this. Or even, you know, paracademia is still quite, you know, a large and very you know, well proliferated thing. Eventually, you know, if we could have Matt Colcoon on who's done it, it's been incredible paracademia outside of the academy working on Mark Fisher's work and his own right. uh, philosophy you know, on his blog. So I, I think it's not necessarily as a radical space, but it's definitely a place where you can incubate radical ideas. I, I think that's important. You know, I want to provide maybe some some American context, because I don't know where our listeners calling in from. And the really important part there for me, uh, when I read that question was affordable. One thing you really have to be clear about when you go into these programs is really know what you're getting into um, financially. And the hardest thing is going to be affordability. And in fact, in the United States, that's where I would put my pressure when making a decision. There are some great programs. The New School is a great program. It's expensive. Um, you know. I, so the reality is when it comes to an education, a center for theory, it's going to come down to whether or not you can come into your own there. Um, yes, it matters if you know a Deleuzean scholar is teaching there and you study Deleuze and you want to be with that professor or so on. But the the real question is going to be, are these people going to be sort of amenable to your interests? Um, and that would be the one thing that I look for. The one, the, the one thing I would be nervous about would be programs that are very analytical. Uh, I know a bunch of the New York State universities are very analytical in their orientation. Uh, Stony Brook here uh, in New York isn't, but a few of them, a few of them are. Uh, so I, it, that would be the thing I look for when it comes to, you know, affordable programs. Uh, all of the state schools, in a sense, are going to be affordable. It's going to be a question of whether or not, or more affordable, but it's going to be a question of what are the opportunities on campus um, to do research work, to TA, and that varies widely, campus to campus. Those are the bits of, of advice that I would give. Uh, to the question of of radicals in academia, I know that David Graeber, who who unfortunately passed away a few a uh, few days ago, an article of his was being circled around about marketing or circulated about marketing in the university, and he essentially said that the university is sort of collapsing into an almost scholastic institution that provides endless footnotes to Deleuze, Foucault, Baudrillard, Lyotard so on, despite knowing full well that were they to manifest in the contemporary era, they'd be denied tenure. Um, yeah. So yeah. when it comes to radical theory, you know, uh, Western University out of Ottawa, they have a theory center and you can look at the, the MA theses and dissertations and you can get an idea of the kind of work those students are doing. You know, I looked at it for a little while. Um, and it's that sort of research. I can't give 
particular programs. I can tell you which ones are very pricey, <clears throat> the new school. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, so, you know, it, it, I, I think that there are great academic opportunities out there, but it's not about finding an environment that immediately suits all of your needs. It's about knowing that you're going to have the institutional support as you change as a student, which you should and will. Yeah. Also, in terms of the um, affordability, just to add add to that, um, you you should you have a, you know a person who, who wrote in or to anyone you know who's also interested in this, um, spend a lot of time looking into what sort of scholarships, um, bursaries, um, you know, studentships, what 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 are available, right? And just apply you know for as many as you possibly can, um, because you know ultimately. These are, many of them are sort of private um, institutions, and you know there's this kind of cost which you have to take on board going in. But um, through something like a studentship, uh, you might be able to minimize that, and you know, and and, and then get in and um, find find your niche, find your, your you know that room you want to uh, to explore. Or, um, you know, this interesting uh, theory, I guess. And just also add that in terms of like you know universities and, and you know radical theory or politics i think one of the main things that uh university does and why it's not not really a coincidence that many of the most radical movements you know since uh, since sort of you know, mid 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 uh, 20th century uh, were, were students it's that it gives you a space where once you're in and once you're sort of stable it gives you the room to to think and to meet new people and to encounter new ideas and new lifestyles and new you know movements or whatever and to be able more or less, you know, obviously have people have different circumstances, but more or less than outside of university, more ability to uh, just to spend time in that kind of milieu, I suppose. Um, that's why David Graeber, you know, had a lot of great things to say about his time with um, student politics all of the time, you know, the radical side of it anyway. It's funny, if you go back, if you go and like look at some of the people who are talking about the times they were doing like sit-ins and things with him in London, um, when they were his students, like many of these are now are now really public, um, high profile radical uh, writers and thinkers and media personalities, or whatever you know, uh, they, they they started a lot of that, got a lot of the starting point, I suppose, from uh, from their time as students. So I, th- I think there's still a possibility there. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's that constant issue with financialization of universities, and um, I guess my answer is going to be the anti answer to this question, and I'm also not going to presuppose that everybody who's listening to this wants to go to a PhD program or an MA program, maybe because they think they cannot. And I'm somebody, I I had my undergrad degree in philosophy, of course, and then I went on to do other and different things. And I got to a point in my life where I thought, well, I'm kind of too old to get into a PhD program or even any sort of graduate program. And of course, that was false. I was teaching at a university, not philosophy, but in virtue of doing so, I was able to take classes that would basically take me to an MA in philosophy for free. And so while I was working there, I was just taking whatever classes were offered at night. And then when I stopped working at the university, then now I had to pay for these classes. And maybe, as you know, as part of my side work, I'm a musician. I was doing gigs in Las Vegas and using that money to pay for the rest of school. And that's basically how I made it through my master's program. 
along the way, it was interesting because I'm a little bit older working adult. I was able to interact with people who were younger than me and see what their concerns were and what the the horizon for prospects, either in PhD program and or jobs look like. One of the things that came up was, and this wasn't necessarily the case when I was an undergrad, is that a lot of PhD programs aren't even looking at students unless you have exceptional grades or an exceptional CV of some sort. Uh, until you have an MA. So one of the things to think about is where can you get your MA for cheap? So I live in California. I went to a CSU school for my MA and that was a great experience. And now we're talking about radical thought. If you're thinking, well, how can I get into a radical philosophy program? My advice is don't. Go into an MA program first. Exactly. That's going to be like an enhanced undergraduate program. Get a lot of analytic philosophy. Get philosophy of science. Do some sociopolitical. And then from there, you know what your interests are. That's your thesis. Lock into somebody there that you can work with. Now you're getting all these skills. So then when you finally get into your PhD program, working on your specialty, you have this whole other set of skills. Yeah, I think that's right. I, 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 I will say um, that it is getting tougher in the U.S. Uh, I'll, I'll just throw some programs uh, other, other than Cal State. San Francisco State University is a great MA. Uh, they have their students also, they get uh, teaching experience and so on. So, uh, you know, if, if you need those sorts of merit badges, go for it. That, that's a good place to do it. And look for those sorts of opportunities everywhere. So let's move on, maybe. Let's uh, go to our other questions that we have here. Uh, the first comes from one of our patrons, Abe. Comrade Abe says, he has a few questions, and I'm directing the first one at Adam. And uh, his question is about Deleuze and Gattari. He says, what do Deleuze and Gattari bring to philosophy that moved the conversation along? I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm going to come toward this question from position of someone who's not as as big was research into Deleuze and Guattari as everyone else on the, on the panel here. But what I sort of, I found them incredibly striking when I first started to read them because I was coming it from seemingly, at least from where they was putting it from, a very opposite side of the, of the magnet, so to speak, from, from Hegelianism. And the idea of thinking about things from this other side of positivity, of differentiation, was something I never really existed before. For example, the, the whole entire reconfiguration of desire as productive rather than as something lacking, which is you know the sort of trope you get if if you if you move through sort of Hegelian studies in towards you know Zizek and the sort of the big Lacanian school which dominates a lot of sides of that sort of discourse where Deleuze is sort of maybe sometimes left behind a bit after you know books like um, Zizek's Organs of That Body and that that was something I thought moved conversation forward quite a bit especially historically through uh, you know, if you see, if you want to trace continental theory from you know. Uh, the free ages, Hegel, Sell, Heidegger, then suddenly we get the injection of Freud and suddenly we have this psychoanalytic turn going forward and eventually totally flips it on its head when it comes to the notion of design and the notion of the unconscious. And the second thing I would say that really sort of flipped it for me was it was the breaking down of Oedipalization, of this rigid, assumed categorization of the only certain, of, of certain patterns which we try to fit all sort of unconscious or psychological motifs into. The sort of the, it's sort of a breaking, it's a rapid sort of explosion of the sort of possibility that you think, well, actually, you know, like we've held Deleuze and Guattari interpret little hands. You know, maybe I don't have to interpret this according to the textbooks. Maybe I can actually trace these, these little desires, these flows somewhere else. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that breaking free. It really was, a, it is really an example in the sense of anti smoothing out 
the the familial striated space of, of Freudian psychoanalysis and seeing what abstract possibilities pop up. So the next question I, I actually have an answer for, but I'll just put it out to you guys first. And this is from Abe again. We'll do one more of his questions. When speaking about difficult concepts from Deleuze and Gattari, what do you find is the most difficult one for people to pick up? Or maybe what was the most difficult one for you to pick up? Uh, it was probably anti-production, um, which which comes out of anti-Oedipus. Um, I think part of the reason why I struggled was my formulation of power. And I had really just started to begin my foray into Foucault for my undergrad thesis. So I, I hadn't yet understood sort of these alternative notions of power, suppression, and so forth. So when I saw anti-production, I sort of just took it as a production of forces that are just meant to like repress, um, which is obviously not correct. Uh, and I hung on to that for a while. Um, it wasn't until, you know, deep into this, I'm going to use the word foray again, into this that I, but I started to see that maybe the way, the very nature of my approach to, to Deleuze was, was incorrect. I think that was sort of the beginning of my reassessment of, of the, of, uh, capitalism and schizophrenia. So I would say that I struggled mostly with, uh, anti-production and sort of, uh, the unconscious is a, a that can operate as a recording space too. The, these are all really, really complicated concepts that are touched on only early in anti-Oedipus and then are sort of dropped. Uh, and you're sort of expected to get where they're going. You know, you have to speak their language. Um, and that can be frustrating. I think that's a legitimate critique of that text is that sometimes it doesn't do enough legwork. But I think fundamentally it's necessary to do that work early on, which was why I think the, the Deleuze and Guattari reading groups that popped up this summer were, were just great. My, my answer would probably be the body about organs. Uh, the good thing, though, is, of course, is that uh, Craig, Craig has recorded an episode um, about Sit Horizon where he explains that one as well. Um, so that, uh, anyone who's interested in understanding that concept can just, just, just go have a look at that one. I think yeah, the body for organs is probably one of the hardest ones because it has so many different kinds of, of, of meanings throughout, you know, if you go from a thousand plateaus to mill plateau. And yeah, I ended up just having to ex- describe it as a kind of circuit breaker or, or stopgap at some point. It was... It, you really had to tie into the logic of disjunction, and I I couldn't understand it without reading someone like uh, like Holland's book on Deleuze and Guattari. That's probably the, it's always the hardest one, and it's always the one most in demand. So it's a pain in the bloody ass. <laughs> right. I guess I could talk more about the body without organs, but just go check that episode. It's all there. Aside from the body without organs, a tough one for me was to get their notion of abstract machine. And if you go into, for example, if you look at uh, Genosco's Deleuze and Gattari dictionary, or at least the one that he's he's on. I don't know if he does the entry for abstract machine. Actually, Eugene Young does. That was a tough one because admittedly, Deleuze and Gattari are working with these concepts and adapting them across different books, like Adam said. And so in the Kafka book, they refer to an abstract machine as a machine that's basically motivated by a transcendent signifier, something that purportedly stands outside the imminent sphere of whatever's being produced within it. And that's different uh, than other uses. I actually had to work on that one quite a bit because my master's thesis was on Kafka's Before the Law, which is typical of what they consider an abstract machine in the Kafka book. 
And so I guess we'll do one more of Abe's questions. He said, if you had to choose two books to be stranded on an island with for several years, what would they be? And we'll start with Matt. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this um, a little bit recently because I have this bad habit of kind of um, dipping into books rather than sort of reading them from the first page to the back to back um, all the way through. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad habit, but um, I, I think I'd probably... Nietzsche's genealogy of morals would be a strong contender um, because I feel like every time you read that book, you get something different from it. On top, on top of that, maybe I'm 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 still a big fan of Zizek's Sublime Object of Ideology. Honestly, I'm I'm not particularly partisan in the whole like Deleuze Lacan uh, debate or discourse, or whatever. And that that was a huge book for me in terms of getting me interested in critical theory, I guess, or critical philosophy. So yeah, maybe something like Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, sublime objects of ideology. Although I've still got a soft spot for um, Schmidt's uh, concept of political as well, um, as a kind of it's one of those texts which challenges a lot of ideas, a lot of our received ideas about what politics is. So yeah, I'll probably stick with the first two. Adam, what about you? Um, well, the first one's going to be Hegel's Knowledge of Spirit, uh, the 1977 Oxford edition, <laughs> because <laughs> that is, yeah, exactly. There are still some parts of that book I don't get. There are still some, I mean, still some parts of it, you know, the, the very poetry of the stuff on, on the religion of art and, you know, the absolute knowing is, is still always going to be uh, great. I mean, also because it's got the commentary with uh, Jay and Finley at the back, I can argue with someone else while I'm on the island. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the second one, I was I was thinking of doing a theory one like Thus Bakes Arafustra or maybe, I don't know, Meal Plateau so I could actually get into it. But I think I, I would need something more poetic just to keep myself marginally sane. Or even if I, if, or if I go off the rails a bit, I can at least use the Hegel text and the poetry to start my own kind of personal religion. So I would have gone for something like um, a collection of the German romantics. Uh, so probably Hilderlin, uh, Nabalists. <laughs> Helderlin the Val. Okay, okay. I'll go. I'll go over collecting what I've that collecting what's Helderlin, or I'll go for the Oxford Book of Modern Verse, which W. B. Yeats put in, which has some great stuff by like uh, Rabindranath Tagore and uh, G. K. Chesterton and Oxford Gates, and yeah, the poetry and phenomenology. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to go next because I'm I'm basically stealing from Adam. It'd probably be Thus Spoke Zarathustra and maybe a thousand plateaus because I don't know that as well as I know Anti Oedipus. And so if we're talking several years, what is yeah. that, 10 years? Uh, sure, I'll do it. Um, but there are some honorable mentions. Maybe just take the Freud reader out there, you know, just go through all Freud yeah. stuff um, because I'd like to know that a lot better. And then I, you know, I do need like the sort of like poetic thing. Maybe I would take like the Tao Te Ching out there just to kind of smooth everything out or the Upanishads or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought about this for a while. But one of my questions back was, am I, have, am I to survive on this island? But given the nature of, because if it was that, it would just be... Uh, the full set of the rise and fall of, of the Roman Empire, and then I just use it as Tinder <laughs> to start fires. Oh, um, but <laughs> or just like uh, just a full body of like Marx's works, not you know, just yeah. so that I have you know at least enough sustenance. Uh, but uh, um, now that it's 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 for leisure and education, I mean, big surprise. One of the texts will be by Foucault, but. Um, it'll be History of Madness, uh, the recent Rutledge uh, publication, just a few years old. Um, and then uh, probably Faust. 
uh, th- mm. those two texts would be be what I what I bring, and and the reason is is frankly because I've, I've never read it, <laughs> um, and and uh, for the for the history of madness to, to just dive into that Foucault Derrida debate um, about unreason. Uh, and and it's 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 inaccessibility. And madness is madness as an inaccessible realm of thought is something that fascinates me when we look at the history of ideas. Um, part of what Foucault does in the history of madness and or madness and civilization is showing sort of the epistemological limits of any given age. Um, and I think that that's essential to sort of get burnt down in my head for the way that I want to engage with philosophy in a sort of archival sense sometimes. Um, because I think methodologically there's a lot to say about that text. And I know that's like generic considering like I'm the Foucault guy on this, uh, on this podcast, but whatever. I mean, at least you can say thank Numina. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. No, I'd, I'd want to go mad. I'd want to go mad reading about Neo-China and it, it hacking my Xeno data or The question whatever. is, am I cutting this part of the episode out? Probably not. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you you leave that in because when we say fuck Nick Land, we mean it. <laughs> I'm actually going to change my answer. I'm actually going to change one of the two I gave <clears throat> instead instead of instead of Shishek's by Modest of Ideology. I would I would probably go for um, Adorno's uh, Minima Moralia. Okay, because um, it's such a it's one of the most beautiful pieces of philosophy ever written, in my opinion. But also yeah. it's so dense and full of ideas i mean you one one page of that book is is the equivalent of a hundred pages of most other most other writers i think we should absolutely dedicate uh, an episode to just you walking us through um yeah adorno i i, I like and uh, you know now now i feel a little bit more comfortable because i'm at home the the hegelian has picked the phen- uh, phenomenology of spirit <laughs> matt you've picked the frankfurt school and i'm and i'm right at home with uh with my boy Michelle. Yeah. So <laughs> here's a question, and I think I'll shoot this at Will first. It's uh, from Tesla, Indigenous Lives Matter. What relationship does philosophy hold with mental health for you? And it says, feel free to interpret as you see fit, but I proudly say that the podcast, this podcast, Acid Horizon, was one of the few things that kept me sane while I was in the psych ward. And I just have to say that I'm, I'm really touched to hear that. Maybe will you could say something. Yeah, I think I think philosophy has everything to do with the way we understand mental health. I, philosophy can mean a lot to people subjectively. Um so I guess I won't answer it that way, right? Because somebody can find sort of deep personal meaning in philosophy and and I often look to to Sartre for that um as as my sort of personal guide. But when it comes to mental health, since we were just talking about madness and civilization, um, Foucault kind of gives this description of of Cartesian dualism as being something that arises out of that discourse. Um, And I think your approach to the philosophical foundations or presuppositions of any given psychological framework is going to tell you a lot about either that breed of psychology, that breed of psychoanalysis. Um, but I want to focus on on the personal a little bit here uh, because I, Tesla, but I, I do get uh, 
the the intensity of that question, and I almost feel unequipped or poorly equipped to answer it. But I'll try um, because I think you know just the detail, and it means a lot to all of us that that people are developing sort of a, a personal uh, relationship, at least to the the things that that we put out. It, it was always sort of our goal to make this sort of a thing that people can approach, um, you know, and we do the best we can. Um, but what I will say is oh, I'm going to take the Heideggerian perspective on this. And I'm going to say that if philosophy, if, if a text of, of philosophy, if you're not dealing with it purely academically, if it's not doing anything for you, it's not worth your time. Um, if it's not changing the way you address the world, if it's not altering the way you feel about something, it's not worth your time. You know, obviously everyone should read J.L. Austin, right? If they're trying to understand semiotics, but if those investigations aren't doing anything for you, keep looking. Um, and, and I think... What philosophy has to do with mental health is it has to do with the very presuppositions that you come to the table with when addressing anything in your life. And if philosophy isn't, say, teaching you how to live, teaching you how to address death, and so on, um, then I, I don't think it's achieving what it needs to. And look, maybe that's maybe uh, you know Nietzsche will sneer at me and say you filthy stoic or whatever um but you know philosophy has meant a lot to me because i engaged with it first non-academically and for that reason you know texts by sartre which is weird right because i'm the foucault guy uh but that you know i i bear that cross um it, 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 my relationship to, the, to, to those texts means something to me very personally. Um, so w- what philosophy means to mental health, I think means to the way in which you address your own mental health. I don't know if that's the adequate enough answer, and I really wish I could provide a better one. Um, but that's the best gander I can give. All right. What about Adam? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um... It's a tough one. Uh, oh, um, I, I don't. I don't have anything productive to say. Even though I'm saying philosophy has been incredibly bad for mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes. sometimes. Uh, the, 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 the hermeneutics of suspicion are a very useful tool, but not a very good mindset to carry around with you all, all the time. Um, have, having sort of the Nietzschean impulse or the the Freudian impulse or the you know the Marxian impulse going. Oh, are you sure you think that? Or is it just, you know, oh, you would think that, wouldn't you? Because uh, where did you get that from? Your ideology or your mother or your, you know, the history, <laughs> the history the of the European right? male. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, there's, a very, there's a sense in which philosophy has to produce a kind of subject. That, that negative part of philosophy has to stop at some point. You know, you, uh, and that's where Deleuze and Guattari come in, right? Yeah, which is where Nietzsche comes in, in a sense. Nietzsche solves his own problem, in a sense, because he, he, philosophizing of a hammer is you know, hitting these idols with a hammer and seeing if they sort of ring in a nice tone. It's not just beating every idol into a hammer, otherwise you never get to the third metamorphosis from the aspects of Zerfruz, and it gets to the child. And I think, yeah, that where sort of the mental health aspects of philosophy can help is coming to a sort of sense of yourself in a kind of 
not necessarily always an affirmative way, but in the sense that you can sort of play with your own thoughts and be comfortable in your own thoughts. And even if they've been, even if your own thinking has been disturbed by a philosophy, there's a sense in which you can engage with it in a constructive way that makes sure this negativity isn't always something excluded from from your own mind. You can sort of manage negativity. You can tarry with it, as, as Hegel would say. And I find that something that's quite I mean, eventually quite helpful to be honest away away from from Dieter. i got like hegel because you could tarry with all these horrible things of absolute navigation negation and, and death and you know abs- total oblivion then you think eventually you come out at the end of it you're like oh do you know i, I might be okay <laughs> but yes yeah, so that's 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 by no means as, as fleshed out as uh constructive as as as, as conrad will's point and uh yeah I, i'm definitely i'm very under equipped for this oh my god <laughs> uh matt yeah, um, so I, th- I think Will did a really good job as well, um, as well as Adam there. But I, m- m- one thing, when I, when I, whenever I think about the relationship between philosophy and mental health, um, I, I always end up going back to um, the, the chapter in Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism about this. Um, because one of the things I think that, that, that's tricky about mental health is, is, is a lot of the time there's this drive to kind of individualize it um so that it's it's a problem which um i am you know uh, one is confronted with and has to uh, solve through their own individual means right whether that's you know uh you know get outside more and exercise and you know fake it till you make it and so on um or whether that's uh you know medication and so on and one of the things I think that can be helpful about philosophy, uh, philosophy in this area is, but um, is to, is to start treating these questions of mental health as perhaps, in many, at least in many cases, I don't want to be sort of sensitive to the diversity of, of issues that are out there. At least in many cases, it's quite clear that we can say that there is a there is a, there is a kind of social or political uh, structure to this, um, particularly when we think about some of the most widespread. Um, contemporary conditions uh, like depression, anxiety, and and, and so on, right? Um, the, the, these are issues which arise under certain circumstances, and that those circumstances are are determined in many ways politically and socially. And so, what that means is that it's it, it changes the question back on itself. So it's no longer about what I can do individually; it's about what all of us can do to create a better society where we aren't forced to confront this as a routine part of everyday life in the first place, in my opinion. And that leads you to movements, to communities, to collective action. Um, and that's a far more positive um, approach, I think. Um, hopefully that made made sense. If I could pick up on that on that point with something, I guess a process of one, yeah, but the Mark Fisher point is incredibly useful for this because uh, I, I was reading um, what recently came out uh, days ago, uh, the, the final lectures. And in the third lecture, he talks about the act of consciousness raising and the idea that we become conscious of these structures that make people ill the cat, and that a priest being individualized. There is a kind of relief there. It's a sense, you know, it's not you're you're not broken. The system is broken. You have been produced as subject. You're not responsible for all these kinds of you know horrible things that have been inflicted on you. You you are, you you are not a self causing fonts of of, of 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 suffering. No no. This is this is a systemic practice. This is a, a practice that has created you, and we have sort of created from a collective project of consciousness raising this 
new consciousness of the structures and the totality that produces these kind of effects. And I think, yeah, I think the Mark Fisher is, is incredibly useful for this. And I think it's great you brought it up. The thing that I would add is that philosophy from a mental health perspective, for me, produces a bunch of different, I guess I would say, avatars, almost like little Pokemons. I, I don't know if I'm going to use the word Pokemon right here, so you guys have to step in. But <laughs> um, what, the way that I think about it is there, there's a whole toolkit that is imparted along your journey, and the tools do different things. And uh, maybe what I can do is we'll just flash back to 1993 right now. I'm in 10th grade, so you can do the math on that. And I was invited to the prom by uh, a young woman at the time who was two years older than me. And in the interim between being invited to the prom and actually going with her, she ended up getting a different boyfriend. And so what happened was there I was listening to boys to men play at the prom as I'm milling about the lobby. The next day I'm down at the bookstore and I found, and here it is again, the Tao Te Ching. And this was my entry into the world of philosophy. And at that time, just getting that was... um, just kind of a palliative for that situation, right? So uh, a lot of us as, as young folks, we, we have that experience. But then going forward, philosophy just provides you with all kinds of really cool tools. I mean, of course, the critical thinking tools, I mean, which works sometimes to offset some of the bullshit that you deal with, yeah. right, on, on a daily basis. Also, uh, I think just being engaged with the rigorous discourse of philosophy allows you to sidestep things that aren't worth your time and detect chatter and nonsense or the the unuseful kind of nonsense anyway that just eats up your time and your mental bandwidth right right? like and so yeah go ahead will (laughs) no it's just it's it's funny because you know in a certain sense my exposure to political philosophy was through debate uh and then because i wasn't a philosophy student my exposure to sort of um ontology phenomenology whatever was just through personal interest and because of that you know i think the Tao Te ching examples like brilliant you know the reason why we all come to this can be so different for some of us it's it's an academic pursuit that's fulfilling for some of us it's you know sort of a personal drive that we're you know given an itch in a debate round or something and then for some of us it's because our our high school girlfriend (laughs) at the time you know did this or that um and and i think all of that shows sort of the 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 grand subjectivity that this uh that comes with this literature um, but two, the reason why I think the political is particularly important is because, you know, as Mark Fisher said, this can't be something, you know, boiled down to, I think it's, uh, something suffered privately by damaged individuals. And it's, it's those sorts of totalities, right? Someone who is sick, someone who is, is this or that, that I think, philosophy forces you to move beyond or or i think i personally think philosophy that's worth pursuing moves beyond that craig was talking about you know philosophy's capacity to help us to filter out um you know a lot of the noise i guess and make us you know evaluate what things do we care about what matters to us um and i just wanted to recommend there's a there's a, there's a very good book by uh, jenny odell called how to do nothing um i i would say uh like the title doesn't do it justice entirely um it's a very good book in the first chapter she references Deleuze uh Franco Bifo Guardi and a few others um and it's all about the ways in which um many of the social issues we're dealing with today uh do have you know uh social and political uh roots and that 
it, it's going to be a matter of uh, political action that, that, that changes these things. Um, so I just wanted to give a shout out to that book because it's really good. Cool. Let's do some more questions. Um, here's a question. I think this is, this is a trap, this question. I think I know the way to get out of this trap. But A Thousand Ozark Plateaus says, what is the correct order in which one should read Mule Plateau? Um, okay, I have an answer for this one. Okay. Definitive. Do it. Okay, so you've got to treat it a bit like Antiedipus, right? And you don't read the preface first. You read the preface after the end of the book, right? Okay, and then you go to the introduction. And then consciousness. Then self-consciousness. Then reason. Then spirit oh, in its parts. Ethical order. <laughs> Uh, culture and morality, <laughs> then religion, then absolute knowing, then oh you read the science of logic, God. and then you read anti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like the the uh, Jesus Christ, Adam. <laughs> Jesus, okay. Uh, the the answer. I'm going to push back on our listener here. The answer is is given to us by by Deleuze and Guattari. You, you read it like you would listen to 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 you know different grooves on a record i mean it's i i just don't think there is sort of an answer to that question but craig if you have a crack that you want to get no that's it. it yeah i mean yeah. that they like, recommend just dropping in anywhere i, I yeah, think that the, the, the key anywhere to start reading the first one i read was becoming intense becoming animal i don't know about you guys what what your what was your first plateau you always remember your first, don't you? Yeah. Postless <laughs> linguistics. It was awful. Oh, no. The stomach references just went all over That's my head. terrible. Uh, we had two days to read it. I, my first plateau was one or several wolves, and I thought it was sick. Um, and that's a yeah. tough one. Yeah. I, I, I really struggled with the Freud in there. Um, but it, because of that text, I was able to actually garner a better understanding of the body without organs. I feel like I, I was ahead of the curve when I uh, be, when I addressed Antiedipus fully uh, after having read that plateau. Um, because the way in which Masumi goes about describing the, the body without organs uh, lines up pretty well with that plateau. Um and obviously, he's someone you will turn to eventually if you're doing like Dola's studies. Uh, you'll have to. Um, this concept of onto power and the onto political, I think, are are essential and like good post Dolazian scholarship. Um, so, and I don't think there is a way to read a thousand plateaus uh, unless you're Adam and you're Hegelian and you're coming here to ruin <laughs> all of our fun. Why, why did we bring this guy out again? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> because who? Because because Catherine Mallory once said, "Who's afraid of Hegelian wars?" Uh, I am. <laughs> There's your answer. I'm afraid. Maybe the next question. Actually, the next question is from Taylor Adkins of Taylor Adkins fame. He says, how much do you love Taylor Adkins and or will you record an episode with him on wrestling and semiotics? See, he didn't send that in. Uh, someone wrote it in French and he translated it. To <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually think this is a good, this is a good, this is a good question. Yes, we love Taylor Adkins. We love him a lot. Um, very much. Uh, so much of the work we do is, is, is thanks to him. Like, uh, I barely speak uh french like I'm, I'm currently in classes for it uh but the the wwe thing i'm going to take seriously uh yeah. i do actually think that there is a lot of really interesting 
bodily semiotics going on there. And I think there's a lot you could say about mm. the docile bodies chapter and the role that WWE plays and like an actual like Foucauldian deconstruction. I think there's also a lot of um, later feminist uh, understandings of, of masculinity and the fragility of that causing sort of gender trouble and the role that WWE and uh, theatrics can play in self-expression and, uh, and pressing on the the edges of like what is entertainment what is reality what is violence so i actually think like not only the semiotics but uh, here here's the thing i'll do it i'll do it if we can open the episode with one of those old like 2007 like back of your f-150 you know with the radio on rock songs if we open up with like craig i know you can do this i know you can make one if you make a wrestling jingle I will do it. <laughs> That's my ultimatum. Kayfabe is a very Foucauldian concept. You're literally regimenting their bodies and they're not leaving out to break it. You can't even be seen together in the same car with someone from the opposite side of the good, evil popularity spectrum. Like, it would be amazing. Yeah, I'm into it. I think we should uh, look at Roland Barthes' essay in Mythologies. That would be a, that would be a really good one yeah. to go into. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, Taylor, Taylor is our, our boy. Um love that. I think the best way of uh, taking wrestling seriously is by not taking it seriously. Um, but yeah, I think we should do it. I think we should do it. Um, I, I imagine, I bet you Taylor has, like, he's already got half an essay written in his head about right. this. Uh, and he, and he, he really wants to have a chance to just, you know, throw some thoughts out there. And, you know, I, I, I think that... that, that I've no idea what to expect from an episode like that, but that's why that's why it should be, could be quite I, I fun. I expect a, yeah. a Taylor Adkins style interaction. I expect like a theory talk level <laughs> yeah. engagement. Like we'll be we'll be discussing it, and then we'll be on like some random plateau, and uh, I'll be lost. <laughs> I won't understand anything that's going on, and I'll be like panicking and and direct messaging Matt on Discord while the discourse is going on. Let's do this question. This is from LSD Spinoza. How have your studies of philosophy enabled you to better understand current events? Have you been able to apply particular concepts to make more sense of the increasingly chaotic world around us? I mean, I mean the, the easy answer there is that um, studying philosophy uh, has taught me that um, basically everything sucks and that it normally just gets worse over time. And so in that sense most of the last few years have just been really perfectly explained by it for me. Um, that's the trend, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, when I was speaking to a friend who works for Amazon, he was describing sort of the problems he has when, for example, they'll be doing, they'll be, uh, doing their job pretty damn well they'll have like an amount of uh packages like stowed away properly but the problem is is that they're being sold off for not doing it in the right way so they have the amazon guys have these special moves for example they call them the the, the macarena or the hadouken and i'm like oh this is kind of cool actually this is kind of like well not kind of cool but you know it's, <laughs> it's really and i sort of excited explaining it to uh the guy I was talking to in these sort of Foucauldian terms about regimenting the soldier's body to, right. to, to his arms to be a gun aiming machine. And it's not actually to do with the actual action as much as it is also to do with the controlling and literally forcing them into these mm. patterns of movement. It's like, Oh shit, this actually explains everything. And I'm like, well, okay. Um, it's like, he said, can you help? Can this, can this stuff help me? And I'm like, you, you got to look to marks for that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there is there is definitely a space for it. I mean, I am less tempted to go into sort of the more predictive mode of philosophy 
for you know sort of very <laughs> nervous Hegelian reasons. But I mean, understanding the practices of, of subjectivation are, are definitely things you can apply to everyday life in terms of yeah. Yeah, I also think that a lot of this stuff has has come into the foreground because of the success of um, various, or I, I guess success is, is the wrong word, so cut that. Because of the movements spawned out of uh, a lot of academic understandings of, you know, gender expression, race, right? The, the president of the United States is tweeting about critical race theory, right? Uh, you know, it, that's a direct... That's a direct relationship between France Fanon and now the president of the goddamn United States. And, you know, I, I know that that's not the great answer. Like, oh, how do I understand, like, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan through, like, Baudrillard? Um, you know, that can be helpful. But I think there's more direct a relationship between philosophy, particularly political philosophy and contemporary politics than we sometimes like to admit. Like a lot of the time we will just say, oh, well, you know, Gambin's a fucking maniac and, um, you know, Judith Butler and all of these other people are, you know, just engaging in grievance studies or whatever. But a lot of the time they are proven correct. I mean, specifically, you know, uh, queer theory in in the recent years. I know that Andrew Kalp will be dealing with this in particular. He'll, a section of his book will be on queer criminality, so coming attractions for contemporary thought. Um, you know, these sorts of very political, very immediate, and uh, very necessary discussions that are going on um, are directly related to, uh, to to philosophical discourses that have occurred. I think one thing that I've always struggled with uh, until I came to post-structuralist theory was a way to think, and here I basically mean Deleuze and Guattari, is a way to think metaphysically about politics and just a way to think metaphysically about economics and the whole problem of desire that they pose in anti-Oedipus, especially today in what seems to be a complete resurgence of fascism in the United States, I think there's a lot of explanatory power in, in Deleuze and Guattari's work. So I, I wrote my, um, my master's thesis on uh, Carl Schmitt and critical theory. And one of like, probably the, the central issue in British politics over the last few years has obviously been Brexit. And... Um, I found reading Schmidt and uh, Chantal Mouffe's sort of commentaries on, on him um, to be a really, really effective way of trying to understand what was going on there. Um, maybe not, I don't want to go into too much detail, but broadly, Schmidt will say that we tend to think of this thing called liberal democracy um, as, a, um, as a sort of distinctive and isolated um, concept or theory. And what he's, going, what he's going to insist on is that actually we... we, we unpack that and distinguish between philosophy, uh, so liberalism and uh, democracy, as two distinctive and antagonistic um, uh, ideas, essentially. And in the form of liberal democracy, it's always um, in tension with itself and pushing in different directions. And that in, under certain circumstances, one tendency will you know, come to the fore rather than the other. And there's always the risk that it will simply um, uh, collapse into, into, uh, into something else. And I, I felt that that was largely what um, a lot of Brexit was about um, in terms of, on the one hand, the liberal impulse towards 
rep- representation towards public public debate and and uh, the role of the, the third estate and, and and so on and right procedures and the rule of law as the final highest uh, ideal and on the other hand democracy which was much more to, which is much more to do with um, the, the expression of the will of the people directly um, and there's nothing higher than there's no higher than nothing higher than that right and I thought that was what was sort of seeming to be to, to, to be happening with with the internal debates over brexit at the time was um, this conflict between uh, parliament and the uh, the people who would vote in a certain way regardless of how I felt about that um, and Schmidt, I found Schmidt to be quite a useful way of uh, sort of lens of uh, thinking through these tensions within liberal, liberal democracy in some ways. Okay, so the next question is from Sublation Cowboy Fuck Twelve, and I'm going to kind of piece it apart here. the The first question, which I think is the one we're going into, is what insights do you think black metal theory has generated for engaging with necropolitics and or post colonial theory? Also, there's there's more to the question. Um, basically, the the relationship between Bataille and Deleuze and Guattari to post colonial uh, approach to the Americas. We do have an episode on Bataille coming up, and there are definitely connections between Bataille and Deleuze and Guattari, especially as it relates to the concept of uh, non-productive expenditure and anti-production and how that relates to the economy. So I think there's going to be some work that we can do there that will answer the question. So here's the next question. This is from DTL.DWG. It says, your thoughts on how architects have appropriated Deleuze? And then he says, see Sanford Quinter, Man- Manuel Delanda, or Derrida, and Eisenman and Schumi. I've watched um, and read a decent amount by uh, by Delanda specifically. Um, and I will say just two things. Firstly, on, on the positive side, um, I, found, I found him hugely helpful, not only for understanding Deleuze um, and Guattari, um, partly because he's quite open, he, you know, he'll, 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 he will... Put right up front that his his interpretation is, in in, a, in many ways, a departure from what Deleuze and Guattari would have would have, you know, agreed to themselves. Um, but also because he actually helped me understand a lot more about the history of mathematics and and architecture and science because he brings them all together in a really interesting way. Um, so I, I I appreciate him for that. Um, on the negative side, I think it's it's precisely Delanda's um, stripping out. Um, stripping out the latent Marxism um, in Deleuze and Guattari's thought, uh, which is the problem with Delanda's <laughs> um, reading, uh, put it that way, um, you end up with a with a very kind of um, skeletal view, I guess, about about what what politics is and can be about. Um, he ends up not not far as I'm aware, not not far off what, uh, someone like William Connolly, who thinks that uh, politics now is really just uh, confined to. Uh, voting protests, you know, making just decisions in the marketplace, um, ed- education, and so on. Um, so, yeah, the other ones I'm afraid I can't speak to, other than that, I um, I do appreciate a lot of a lot of what Delanda does, and I, I I think he's a I find I find the way he connects up architecture with Deleuze and Guattari and, and and other sort of scientific and social scientific disciplines really interesting too. I think Deleuze and his relationship to to architecture. Um, specifically through Delanda is interesting on the basis of complexity. Um, and, you know, Deleuze is writing right at the end of sort of the brutalist era, which for, at least in the U.S., and Craig can speak to this, is sort of still the reigning architectural 
uh, school when it comes to um, governmental buildings and anything financed by the state. Um, but but I, I, I do think when you see particular postmodern architectural trends, I, I can't help but see a little bit of Deleuze, but maybe I just read Deleuze into these things where I shouldn't. But again, I'm not an, arch, uh, an architecture student. If you want to look at uh, an architecture student who who was writing about Deleuze, Guattari, Derrida, Foucault, uh, Paul Preciato, uh, their work, um, they, were, they were an architecture student that Derrida sent to the new school. Uh, so that that's one place you could turn to, but yeah, I, I you know I do see it. I see the the influence, but I could just be reading it into uh, the world around me. Okay, so the next question is from Doctor Richard Waterloo, and it's kind of a long question, but I'll just kind of distill the important parts. Um, they ask. How do people find their way out of postmodernism philosophically? And do philosophers that entertain the ideas eventually move on? And one of the lingering concerns they have relates to nihilism. They go on to say, I wonder if creating new ideas is actually good. It seems like new ideas are appropriated to cause destruction anyway. New philosophy ideas, new philosophical ideas don't solve anything except the thinker or the writer's issues whatever they may have been. What's interesting about the question uh, from uh, Richard Waterloo, Dr. Richard Waterloo is they, they start off with um, the mention of uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who is most famous for the concept of a, you know, a reality tunnel everyone filters through. And it's, it's a very relativistic concept, but I think, I don't know, it's something that, I don't think that any of the, the, the people that are grouped under the term postmodernism really would buy into the full reality tunnel idea because they wouldn't, take positions incredibly substantial. They, they think there is a reality under this. They think there's something actively undermining the notions of objectivity and truth that modernity had, had held so dear and held so firm to, especially during the Enlightenment. And there is a reality, there is a truth here, but the truth is, is that these things are crumbling. They're being corroded. They are under threat. And this is something they take very seriously. Maybe some people like Deleuze and Guattari and the accelerationists think there's something emancipatory in this, in this liberation from modernity, but there's also a sense in which a lot there, there are some things that uh, can be lost i mean i think the question also mentions uh sort of also mentioned mark fisher and i wouldn't all of these thinkers they problematize postmodernity as a real social phenomenon and i don't think you can go beyond these thinkers grouped under the category of, of postmodern with without going out going through the conditions that produced them and if anything some of these thinkers have proved incredibly well predictive even uh, in arguably some very self-undermining ways. So the Deleuzean Society of Control postscript, that is, to me, that is rather, that is prophetic, if anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are sense in which you can group postmodernism under one heading in a sense of, you can say, for example, if you take the definition of postmodernism given by uh, Jean-François Lyotard and say that postmodernism is incredulity around meta-narratives, which meta-narratives were previously sort of stand in for the worldview that constituted your sense of objectivity and, and meaning. You say which there is still a meta-narrative of that. The meta-narrative that John Fontaliotar posits is that we have lost this sense in meta-narratives. This is a, a, um, a sort of a world-constituting trend, and he thinks it's undermined by philosophical thought, yes, but he thinks it's mainly undermined by people like Wittgenstein. This isn't undermining of reality, it's proving that reality is more complicated th than we think it is. And I, d I don't think we can really go past the postmodernists until we've got past the problems they brought up. I think the problems, I disagree with the question, I think the problems are, are a, bit more, a bit more real. And maybe some concepts 
may not be the best at creating uh, fixing those problems but i think we can sort of do what sort of samuel beckett says and sort of learn to fail and, and fail better it's it's an understandable and reasonable question and i think mm, um all of us will know so many people who've asked this you know, either to us or there's a point, better pointer in our lives where we've asked it ourselves um but the common thread the common thread i always find there is that um uh when the person who asked this question in general the reason is that their first encounter has been with baudrillard um it's almost always baudrillard um and i think there's there's some reasons for that um not too much detail here but i think if you read someone like like Deleuze, for example Deleuze is making bold and objective claims about metaphysics um he is an out and out metaphysician uh, the structure of reality and the nature of thought and so on um you know and, and derrida you know he's often parodied this thing as sort of um as saying that um you know we can just interpret a text any way we want but um derrida more than almost anyone else of his generation was incredibly strict about the necessity of a really careful and close reading of an original yes. text for example and that, that's hugely important for, for someone like Derrida I will say so I don't I don't really think that there's um, such an issue that people you know, po- do, you know do postmodernists stick around for decades with this material um, yeah they do um, and I think um, Adam points to a lot of the reasons for that which is that um a lot of their claims seem to have been um, vindicated, at least in many cases. Um, and so the question is, you know, if their if their responses to those uh, questions are inadequate, then we need to, then we still need to show why and what a better answer might look like. And then I will say, then lastly, that I do have worries about the connection or lack thereof potentially between uh, postmodern philosophy. Um, or political postmodern political philosophy and actual political practice, what it actually looks like in uh, in reality. I mean, that that's literally what I'm doing my my PhD in, is I'm trying to work through that question, right? What is a you know how does postmodernism or post structuralism um, inform mm. political practice in a way, right? Um, so I think there are questions there, um, but even then, it's more nuanced than simply you know. Um, I mean, so so Deleuze and Guattari in particular, right? Like these are those in, those two in particular were. Um, really quite strongly indebted to uh, to Marx um, you know so they're, 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 they're engaging with a with a, a, a history of, of philosophy um, of a certain uh, Western philosophical tradition um, in the way that many of the best philosophers do um, so I'm, I'm rambling a little bit now but um, no this is good yeah I, 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 I think that's one of the um, Things is that once you start talking about post-structuralism, you, I, it, it's hard. It's hard to make general generalizations about them because they're so um, they're so diverse in many ways. You know, many of these thinkers. I mean, Derrida and Deleuze got along very well per, um, personally, but there's also lots of areas where their philosophies come into conflict. Um, and there are questions about you know what what do we do with this material? And I think that's a fair question. What 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 do we do in a political sense? You know, um, rather than just sort of stepping back and saying oh, okay well it's all going to shit you know let's just you know um in, enjoy the you know enjoy burning down right um that's an open and valid question that's something i'm trying to work through myself um but yeah people do stick with it and there's, there's a lot there's a lot of power in what they what they write um and it's not it's not simply that you know truth is relative um you know anything goes you know the text doesn't you know the, the text is, is is open text whatever um so I, I think it's a valid question, um, but I, I, I think there's much more to it than um, than's being credit, given credit for. Just just to round off 
that sort of what I was speaking about before. I think that postmodernist philosophy like Deleuze and Guattari and Fischler is great to go through because, as we can see, it's an, there's, there's an inherently practical sense to it. You know, as Deleuze said in the postscript on society's control, which I sort of praised earlier, which was, you know, there is no need to fear or hope but to look for new weapons. After, you know, towards the end of um, Mark Fisher's uh, life, he was working on this practical uh, concept of consciousness raising, which he did look derives from Marcuse and Deleuze and it's Guattari and um, Freud. And it's, it's, there is a practical element to this. I mean, I was just sort of looking around for stuff on the Manic War Machine on, on the internet the other day, and I found this video from a professor called Paul Watts, who's at Birkbeck, who's a geography teacher, and he want, he's trying to use the nomadic war machine to model a way in which you could do anti-gentrification protests by taking up a city sort of planning meetings and taking this very straight space off. You have to put your hand up and wait for your turn to speak and just flattening it out, occupying it. So I think there is a very practical sense in which the, this sort of philosophy is oriented. Maybe the bit that I'll add to it is, and, and I'll combine this response with a question uh, offered by Prolit Suture. They have a name, I think it's in Dutch here, Ishaj. Their question is, to what extent can one speak of Deleuze and maybe even Deleuze and Guattari as post-structuralist or structuralist? And let's even bring in the term postmodernist here. Uh, my, my first thing is, ask yourself, what kind of work are those terms even doing? Postmodernism, post-structuralism. Are they terminating your reading or terminating your way of thinking about those thinkers in any in any way that's making them less meaningful for you. If that's the case, get rid of those terms, right? I mean, or at least put <laughs> yeah. them off to the side, right? Because I think the the definition of postmodernism, maybe even more so than post-structuralism, is very hotly contested. And there are multiple definitions of it. Um, as far as being a post-structuralist is concerned, and how does it relate to Deleuze and Guattari? Maybe I'll just go right to the example. Uh, think about the way that Guattari says there's no such thing as a language in itself, that there's no presupposed structure of language or any some such thing that we can call language that is a priori a thing, right? Now, that said, you can be like, ah, now I know the definition of post-structuralism. It goes like this. It's been intimated through that example. The danger just comes back in. Find out the view, right? Like, wh where does that view take them? What does it mean to be a dominant language? How does a language change or evolve over time? How do languages interact or, or intersect with the economy, with finance, with skin and blood and stone? Like, this is what Deleuze and Guattari are trying to get at in their political ontology, is how all of these things sort of mesh together. So, um, in short, be careful of the terms. In fact, I would say get rid of them until you have a good sense of the views. Although with Deleuze, I, I probably also recommend reading his essay, uh, How Do You Recognize Structuralism? Oh, so see, yeah. Can he see if he thought he was one? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm not an expert, but I, 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 I was always under the impression that um, Deleuze in particular actually had quite, quite a, a nuanced relationship with particularly the work of uh, Claude Levi-Strauss. Um, it, it's not simply a total critique uh, from, from start to finish. Um, I, I do think often that the, the terms themselves, like post-structuralism is definitely preferable to post-modernism, right? Um, it, it has fewer misunderstandings than that. But um, yeah, even then, I, 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 I just tend to think that given the thinkers it, it tends to designate, um, you know, uh, 
Deleuze, Derrida, uh, Foucault, um, and so on. Um, these thinkers often actually had not not very much in common with each other um, in terms of the actual uh, in terms of their philosophical uh, you know, contributions or systems or whatever. Um, and there's much more diversity within within these labels um, than is given credit for, and so that's why I think it, it can be. Uh, dangerous still um yeah we uh, read, read Deleuze's essay on on how to recognize it um and then but al- and then also um yeah I, I suspect that many of these writers like uh, Derrida as well had a slightly more complex relationship with you know quote-unquote structuralism than is uh often uh you know uh, admitted I suppose yeah and maybe one thing that I'll just add there is Watch the way that Deleuze develops a line of thought about intensities over the course of his career. And I just came off of reading his essay on Saad and masochism, in which he talks about Freud and Jung. And it's in the the new book, the, the Letters and Text book that just recently came out. And in that essay, you can see him make this move talking about the way that the Freudian conception of desire differs from the Jungian conception of desire insofar that Jung allows this more heterogeneous movement within his notion of the unconscious. Now, Deleuze, down the line in writing Anti-Oedipus and developing the concept of intensities, even breaks further from that, going beyond archetypes. In fact, in some ways, he subsumes the notion of archetypes to intensities, or at least puts it alongside it in a way that makes his concept of intensities even more expansive. And to me, uh, in a way that allows for more explanatory power of the unconscious. And and then, of course, Deleuze and Gattari formulating their own notion of the unconscious, which breaks it out of the brain. To me, it's, it's about recognizing the moves more so than labeling them. We only have a few more questions left. Let's do this one. Talking about Deleuze and Gattari again. What did Gilles Deleuze and Félix Gattari find so vital in Antonin Artaud? Um, with Artaud, texts like to have done with the judgment of God, uh, it's about pushing things to their sort, sort of limits, right? And one of the things I keep coming back to when it comes to Artaud and Deleuze is the schizophrenic table. Right, um, I'm sure Craig will know this example quite well. You know, we have this table. I have my focus right on it. I've got my microphone, my stand, my computer, my Zoom call with my class on it. You know, uh, my books. Now I've got a cup, and I just keep stacking inside. Is it not? And it starts to become sort of a different mess. The 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 very way in which I, I begin to engage with this this idea of the table sorts sorts of. As a as a multiplicity of things, as an assemblage of all of these different things and zones that I can engage with, things that I can do, it I, I start to deal with it at the level of, of of sort of the surface. But then I break it down, and Artaud is kind of doing that to the post industrial era, and he's doing it to language, and he's breaking and obliterating these sorts of things in order to create sort of just pure intensities. So, of course, the answer with Artaud is is the body without organs, right? I could just say, oh, well, look at the interview he gave after, you know, after a brief airing of, of pieces of it on the radio, and he talks about trying to bring about a sort of body without organs. And, of course, Culp spoke about this in his interview with us, which, of course, if you haven't listened to it, you probably should. Um, but with Artaud, it's, I think, it's about the the explicit limit of 
the language in which he's been given and how he toys with the exteriority of language about the the, the very the very ends of it um and you know that's why and i know i'm i'm struggling a little bit here but that's why foucault too in madness and civilization has a y- unique relationship with arto because he sees arto as sort of the the very hyper extension of rationalized discourse the very alternative to it the other side it's sitting in the darkness it is the unreason him and nietzsche they come in as as people sort of embodying a space with conventional rationalist discourse can't translate. It doesn't have the tools to understand it. But if we just knew a little bit more about these alternative spaces, if we could move towards an unreason, then maybe we could understand our toe. And with Deleuze, I think it's it's sort of similar, but different in the sense, sense that he is pushing towards a limit, towards a breaking down, um, which I think that's the relationship with Antonin Artaud. And I'm sure Craig has a much better explanation than I do, uh, but that that's just my, my take. No, I think that was fantastic. Um, I would just add to that, of course, Deleuze and Gattari think he's vital in the sense that he is the most anti-Oedipal of the figures that they deal with. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. I totally yeah, forgot no, that. that's, I think that's an important thing to to add. But it's also important to add for, for Deleuze and Gattari, Artaud is a cautionary tale. This is the story of somebody who went too far. He drove himself off mm-hmm. a cliff mentally and physically in the pursuit of his art. And so basically going on this intensive revolution, the, the caution is this, do not go too far in our venture, right? Do not de-stratify too greatly. Do not de to the point that you've compromised your entire life. And I think that's the important thing with, with Deleuze and Guattari. Um, you know, of course, there are some great uh, political movements that come out of, of D&G Everything from, you know, uh, gender abolition, all of these wonderful movements. But then on the other side, right, there's this attempt to just say, oh, Deleuze and Guattari are just trying to sort of create sort of an empty, cold zone where all we have left is is the exteriority and the outsideness of the world. And everything that we've built up around us has been reduced to this sort of cold, numinal uh, intensity. And I think the answer is no. They, 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 they see sometimes a, a real functional value in some of these things. But what they don't want to do is see them as universals or natural things. Um, they have a functionalist perspective on these things. They care not what Oedipus means, but what Oedipus does. They care not what mommy, daddy, sister, brother, boy, girl means, but what it does. So in a sense, you know, these liberationist movements that take real inspiration from DNG, that's the creative aspect of it, the, the, the destructive creative aspect of it, the truly Nietzschean element. But with um, with Artaud, they sort of show how he can fall out and find himself lost. Um, and I, I, you know, I just wanted to make sure that that you know that that these sorts of readings of Deleuze and Guattari can be uh, 
can be sometimes interesting, but the people who just reject them outright as as like the like the psychiatrists and and psychologists and psychoanalysts that did you know at the release of Antiedipus, I think sometimes it's just the result of a misinterpretation. Here's an interesting question uh, from Hugo, or it's probably pronounced Ugo. I think they're from South America, and uh, they they're often on our Twitter. And so, hello. Their question goes like this, and I'm going to kind of recast it. Basically, the concern is, it regards chapter three of Deleuze's Difference and Repetition and the ninth series of Logic and Sense. And it's basically asking, how do we not fall in to the dogmatic image of thought? How is it that we can live a problem, uh, perceive the world without falling into the dogmatic image of thought? And what is its possible effect upon society? Um, and I think the it here is maybe either being in it or being out of the dogmatic image of thought, at least as Deleuze construes it. It's a tricky question. Um, and I'm not sure if I, if I, if I, um, can provide a, a properly satisfactory answer, to be honest with you. Um, other than that, it, it, other than that, firstly, it's a good question, and secondly, that it all, it always takes me back to. Um, it, it's almost like a question of ideology, right? Um, which you know, of course, they, they, they reject that concept, but there the, the question is, you know, for someone like Zizek, um, isn't it precisely when you? You, you come to believe that you have moved beyond ideology and that you've escaped it finally, that you have become most precise, most, most extremely, you know, deep in ideology, essentially, right? That's the problem for someone like Zizek. And I suppose that's sort of the, in one sense, the problem here of uh, enacting a non-dogmatic image of thought. And so maybe, maybe part of it at least is sort of um, a kind of conscious awareness of the way in which we're structured to and raised to, to think and act. And, and, and to do what we can to push against that, I suppose. I think for me, and I get this a little bit from my reading of Gattari on transversality, taking that essay, uh, the introduction to transversality, and taking chapter three of Difference and Repetition, I think that escaping the image of thought first involves questioning all kinds of presuppositions like Deleuze does in chapter three of Difference and Repetition. So the question is, how do we sure. do that in other yeah. dimensions of our life? And and just to go back to the original question, they're asking how this notion relates to things like research and educational practice. And so I'm thinking about my own work in education. I think it goes without saying that this is actually very hard to do. And I think any attempt that you make to try to think outside what we would call the image of thought is very difficult. I think the highly determined nature of the way that we just think about things in general makes this so hard. But I do think it's possible to get away from it by asking the right kinds of questions. For example, what are some presuppositions uh, that I have or some assumptions that I'm making about my students that might make it hard for me to engage them on a certain level. There's a whole slew of questions that I normally ask myself on a given day, whether it comes to preparing lessons or getting feedback from my students, but also I'm questioning my own questions, right? Because sometimes, especially as a teacher, as an authority figure, if you put a question out there, people will craft their answers to please the question, Right. And so I have to I have to think about how to ask questions in a way that allows other people to become unmoored from the image of thought, whatever that means. And I'm talking in very abstract terms here. But I think the important thing is maybe a, a more positive question is how can we create the new? 
And so I think that question goes hand in hand with it. And so anytime I, I, I venture into any task, whether it's creating a podcast, for example, or new music, one of the important things that I do right from the start is open up this line of inquiry so that I kind of prime myself to actually create something new. All right, moving on. We only have a few more. Maybe maybe this one's for Adam. So this is from Dead Triumvirate. Do you think that materialism and idealism exist in a strict dichotomy to one another? Or can Numa, spiritual essence or being, in my description, that undergirds idealism blend with materialist foundations? Sounds like a nonsense question. I can clarify if necessary, they say. I don't know. I think that's a cool question. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty clear to me. Um, well, I think... <sighs> In any, talk, in, any, in any discussion about the idealism materialism distinction, you have to think about the very multiplicity of, of senses that the term materialism has been given, uh, especially as well as idealism, because a lot of the te- – if you talk to a lot of Marxists, they use idealism to mean uh, bad or just incorrect in general. And if you look at the terms of the use of materialism, there's a sense in which it's meant negatively not idealism, but it also means in some senses uh, – particularity or multiplicity where you look at things as a multiplicity um, reality rather than subsuming them under one uh, monolithic sort of concept and there's also sort of the analytic philosophy sense in which there, sort of a materialism is synonymous with an empiricism but it's also synonymous with a kind of metaphysical they would call it parsimony i would call it austerity from my perspective i don't think you can read i i, I don't like keeping idealism and materialism in a completely distinct separation from each other I think um, any time you try to do deal with a kind of metaphysical or logical motion through um, any kind of material or contingent reality, you're doing something that someone could point out and say it's idealism. But there's a sense in which there's a sense in which there's a, a kind of logic to how these things go. I mean, you know, I mean if you have a, a science of logic in the Hegelian sense or a logic of sense in the Deleuzean sense, I think logicism kind of reintegrates something of the idea into the any sort of material. Because materialism is an account of the world. An account has an in- intrinsic uh, subject uh, component into it. And I, I don't think it's something you can ever in- entirely eliminate. I mean, yeah, the uh, ideas are, you know, objects are embodied ideas in some sense. You know, um, labor embodies, is, is a material action that, you know, embodies certain social relations as social realities, but also as subjective realities that we can become conscious of in the in these objects. And I really don't think you can separate idealism and materialism too much. I think if you you can go too far on the one side and just sort of say there's no idea that it's all matter, but matter on its own is an incredibly abstract concept. It's only when we go through this process of thinking through these these concepts and these immediacies that we can eventually get through to something more concrete, which is both, uh, I think, me and a mixture of, of, of the ideal and and, and the real. I, I don't I don't believe in immediacy, <laughs> uh, like like as Lukács said, immediacy is ideology. Uh, these the given it's not a thing. Everything is already mediated by systems of language and historical context and social relations. You just need to understand the reality of this mediation and how these ideas have been circulated and the material practices that goes around them. This is why Foucault is not a linguistic idealist. Discourse is a material practice, but it's material practice of ideas are embodied in a certain in, in, in practice. I don't think you need to keep the ideal as a substrate outside of that. And that in the same way, keeping the, re- the, the materials as a substrate, I think they can both be always already intertwining. Thanks to everybody who submitted a question. Our upcoming episodes include Matt Colquhoun, 
And we will be talking about the newly released compilation of lectures by Mark Fisher on post-capitalist desire by Repeater Books. We're all very excited to do that episode. Also, as promised, keeps getting put back, but it's coming soon, is our episode on Bataille. And we have plenty more scheduled for the rest of fall and winter. So please look forward to it. Support us on Patreon, Twitter, Instagram, buy some merchandise from us. Whatever you'd like to do to get involved, we would be very appreciative. Once again, thank you. This concludes our first Q&A. Answers without organs. We'll see you next time. <laughs>